Hello, and thank you today for joining Kyogen's webinar that is entitled Enabling High-Throughput Genomic Surveillance of Emerging SARS-CoV-2 Strains B117 and B1351. Uh, my name is Joby Chesnick. I'm a Senior Global Market Manager here with Kyogen, and I will be your host for today's webinar. Uh, I do want to let you know that uh, all uh, uh, attendees are muted. Um, however, we do uh, provide a chat box for you to ask questions at any time during the presentation. And I'd like it if now if you could please find your chat box and if you could please type hello or some other message into that chat box um, as a check just to make sure that I, I know that you can hear me. So if you could do that right now, um, I'll just take a minute and uh, wait. Perfect. Thank you so much. It looks like lots of you can hear me. If you are having trouble um, with the audio, please um, do check your connection or you may need to log in again. Um, but it looks like most people can hear me. So we will go ahead and proceed. Uh, we have a very timely webinar today um, about uh, surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 variants. And I want to therefore get started right away. Um, our first uh, Speaker uh, is Brian Dugan. He's an associate director um, here for Genomics Global Product Management, and he'll be followed by Sean Prince, who's a senior field application scientist in bioinformatics at Kyogen. So, Brian, uh, welcome to our webinar today, and we're really excited to hear this talk. Thank you, Joey, and uh, thank you everyone for, for attending today's webinar uh, and, and enabling high throughput genomic sur surveillance of SARS-CoV-2, especially emerging strains uh, B117, 1351, uh, not to mention other ones such as uh, P1 and P2 uh, and, and others that have emerged in the United States recently. So before we get started, um, just a brief disclaimer here. <clears throat> These products are not intended for diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of a disease. All of our licensing information and uh, handbooks uh, are, are available at, on kaijin.com and can be requested from Kaijin Technical Services or your local distributor. So <clears throat> for today's agenda, we'll have a brief over, overview of the coronavirus, right, SARS-CoV-2, um, some of the variants uh, that have emerged recently or the viral variants um, that have emerged recently with uh, novel mutations across the genome. Next, we'll talk about the Kyocene SARS-CoV-2 primer panel, as well as introduce some data. And then we'll follow that and conclude with Kygen Digital Insight Solutions for analyzing and, and doing phylogenetic, phylogenetic analysis of SARS-CoV-2. So <clears throat> the background here, right, as you know, so we've been living in a COVID world really for a year now. And even the, the first, uh, I think, webinar that I gave in a series last year in 2020 was around the March timeframe. And we talked about diagnostics. We talked about epidemiology. We talked about host pathogen interaction, right? Because so much of that, of these things were really unknowns. And every, everyone around the world was trying to get up to speed first on diagnostics. 
But over the last eight to 10 weeks, we have seen increasing emergence of new viral variants, uh, uh, variants of the virus that have specific mutations uh, that provide some level of adaptation, adaptation uh, in, in the spike protein and across the genome here that are very, very important for us to look at. And so, you know, really to be able to do this, to be able to, to uh, submit to GISAID um, as well as SRA, you know, really the, the methods that we're talking about here are genomic epidemiology, right? And so that requires whole viral uh, genome sequencing, um, whether it's with targeted approaches or as well you can do that with whole transcriptome sequencing as well, right? Today, we're only going to focus on, on targeted um, whole viral genome sequencing for SARS-CoV-2. <clears throat> But so with that, the, as I said, the last you know, eight to 10 weeks have really uh, changed I think, of, of what's going on from a testing modality perspective. While many uh, early media reports uh, signified or, or said that the virus was not mutating you know, quickly, I think we know that that was not actually the case. Uh, if you look at it, the, the first mutation that was really provided an advantage to the virus the D614G mutation, which was found early in Asia, right, in, in 2020, actually makes up the predominant amount of strains uh, in, the, in the United States alone, right? So we've already seen that, that one mutation has already conferred, you know, an advantage. But over those last eight weeks or 10 weeks that we, we've seen, we've seen this emergence of uh, the B117, uh, B1351 and P1, as well as P2, which was, I believe, only recently published um, this past week. There's another variant that's also emerged in the United States in the West Coast in California, right? Um, that is uh, a very, very new uh, and still being published on. Now, that is B1427 or B1429, right, with an alternative name of Cal.20C. <clears throat> All of this is being done essentially in real time. And so what this means is that there's a tremendous strain on the system, on the genomic system that exists today. For a long period of time, the focus was, was obviously on diagnostics and getting the testing and just being able to know whether someone had, has COVID-19, <clears throat> whether they were infected with that, whether it's a PCR method, a point of care testing, like antigen testing, all of this stuff has really has been ramped up in the past. But with the new variants and the need to actually surveil for these different variations and mutations in the virus, next-gen sequencing is now being asked to do probably what it, you know, definitely what it's never been asked to do, to sequence at levels that are countrywide, right? Uh, publications recently have talked about, you know, countries in, in Europe like Denmark sequencing their entire positive set. Uh, some countries talking about uh, sequencing 5 to 10% or even higher amounts of samples. So with that and that, that, that demand, we're seeing thousands of times increased demand for things like library prep kits, like next-gen sequencing kits, like tips, like plastics, like plates. All of this has, has really just hit us all at once, right? And so if you're in a lab right now, you might be, might, might be seeing that not only are you trying to keep up with the demand for, for, for diagnostics, keep up with the demand for sequencing, but also figure out a way really to be able to, to get all these materials in, right? And that's been a challenge, I think, for everyone and that has really just been exacerbated over the last few weeks. 
So it, it's important to put this in context here as we talk about this, right? Because everyone is essentially around the world is racing to do this all at once. <clears throat> so if I put just B117 and 1351 here up here, and we look at the variants, uh, the mutations, sorry, that 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 actually you know signify uh, are <clears throat> these for these variants, they span the entire genome. Now, the vast majority of interest has been in, in, in mutations in the spike or the S gene. And this is important for, for two specific regions. Number one, as I mentioned with D614G, right, we saw that that conferred uh, transmissibility um, in, in it during that first mutation from, its, from the first wild type that was seen um, early on in Asia into what has spread around the world. So we know that, that mutations in the spike protein can, can have that effect. But with now the emergence and the delivery of vaccines globally, the vaccine candidates that are out there, whether it's the Pfizer, the Moderna, the Novavax, and others that are out there, predominantly are focused on, on methods that, that really utilize the immune system to recognize the spike protein, whether it's through mRNA or proteins. And so changes in the, in the confirmation of the spike protein right, can, ha can have potential effects where it could actually change the formation of, of the, the uh, spike protein, and that could change the, the viral, um, the immune response, right, to the virus as, as it expands. So this is concerning because it essentially could lead to immune escape. <clears throat> when you look at just the SG mutations here, right, and you look at the totality of just 117 and 351, and lay them across the entire S gene, you see that, right, this, whatever was said about this being a slowly mutating virus is really, you know, sort of not correct. You can see there's a tremendous amount of, of mutations that have occurred over time, right, in these different uh, lineages that we have with the virus. And when you put them all together of just 117 and 351, you see that there is significant, a significant number of things that can have effects right, in terms of, you know, where they sit in, in, in the, the COVID genome, um, and, and they potentially have effects, on, as I said, on the spike protein and its formation. So with that, last year, Kaijin released our Kaiseq SARS-CoV-2 primer panel, which is paired up with our Kaiseq FX DNA library prep kit. <clears throat> and one of the reasons that we did this is because <clears throat> the Arctic protocols of which the primer designs are based on really requires you to go out to a number of different vendors and get master mix, reverse transcription uh, reagents, uh, primers, uh, enrichment uh, materials, right, to be able to do this. And by consolidating this into a single kit, it not only allows you to buy a single box, right, to do, to do RT and enrichment, but it also allows you to save money and time and reduce your need for multiple vendors. Right, and so with the idea that this would eventually sort of develop and there would be a higher need for sequencing, right, this is something that's absolutely critical. And this is true of whether you're using a Kaiseq FX library prep kit or you're using any other uh, competitor library prep kit, uh, being able to consolidate those, the, the RT and the primers into one box, it really does you know, allow you to, to simplify you know, your ordering and, and what you have to worry about as you try to, to scale up to do this. The other thing that happened is, is that, you know, the, the Arctic primers themselves have, have, have had three versions that have been released, right? Uh, we're, at, we're at Arctic V3, <clears throat> um, which, is, which is right now. Um, but we also have seen from, from data that's been published up on SRA and GISAID 
is that there are areas for improvement um, when, when you were adapting the Arctic primers to short read sequencing. The Arctic primers themselves are designed or 400 base pair amplicons, right? And so the idea here is that you could actually look at that on, on both a, you know, a long read platform, um, but now it's been adapted to high throughput platforms, which are predominantly short read. And so to do that, when you look at the genome, right, you see that there are areas that perform really, really well, um, where some areas where you have overlapping amplicons of 50 bases on each side, but there are some amplicons that just don't perform well, right? And so over the last year, what we've seen is, is that there are areas that need to be boosted. So what we've done is we first, we made the, our chemistry a hi-fi chemistry, which allows for the sequencing of the most challenging samples. It all allow, also allows for you know, high uh, confidence variant calling, um, even from low uh, uh, sequencing depth samples. Um, but we've also improved the coverage of, of the genome by adding and rebalancing the primers. So we, we really added one primer, which I'll show shortly, um, but we also re, rebalanced the primers in terms of their concentrations here to improve coverage overall across the genome. The other thing here has been, <clears throat> that's been talked about, at first, you know, everyone was trying to figure out, can you use sequencing as a proxy for PCR? And there have been solutions that have been put on the market that allow you to scale a large-scale sequencer like a NovaSeq up to 3,000 samples per run. Kygen also has that capability with our KaiSeq FX UDI kits. Because we have a 384 uh, uh, indexes that are available, it allows you to go 384 indexes in an individual lane of a high, uh, 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 sorry, of a NovaSeq, and a, and a HiSeq as well if you're running an older platform. Now, a NovaSeq S4, each chip, right, has four individual lanes, and, and, and it allows you to run two flow cells at a time. So all in all, you can run eight times 384 or over uh, 3,000 samples in a run. If you're running a high throughput sequencing lab and you're getting from whether it's a state or a country, right, this is an option and certainly necessary with some of the COVID numbers that, that, that even though they're currently decreasing are still occurring. So the, the, the KaiSeq COVID solution is a, is a two box solution here that allows you to take the front end, which is, again is the RT and the uh, enrichment for SARS-CoV-2 across the entire genome. To take that viral sample after an isolation, uh, typically using a KaiAmp RNA isolation, go through cDNA synthesis, then do sample enrichment with multiplex primers, right? Then pool, then quantum normalize and go into your, your, your library prep kit. So the last step is the KaiSeq FX library prep kit, but this front end, again, the RT and the enrichment are compatible with any downstream library prep kit that you may have. So when we look at this and we see that the, the, the viral genome here is one of the, the important points to visualize here is, is the Arctic primers themselves. So the primers themselves span the genome, again, with overlapping regions, really about 50 base pairs on each side. The amplicon sizes are about you know, 400 base pairs uh, on average here. Um, but the sequencing that we're talking about is two by 150, right? So to do this, it requires some form of fragmentation uh, really to get that in and to be able to do sequencing in this method. Overall, there's 99 tiling amplicons overall. And as I said, we've added an additional primer in the 19,000 region, which I'll show on the next slide, how it improves coverage. 
This is uh, the endoribonuclease in the genome um, that, that's been uh, published on. And so this seems to have some dropout uh, across, uh, you know, in this specific region. And so it's an area that in speaking to, to, to customers and people doing, uh, whether it's drug development or other things, in, in research in, in this area, that this is an area of interest, so it needed to be essentially to be, uh, to be increased in terms of coverage. So this region, um, 19,250 to roughly about 19,500, uh, pulling from publicly available data, um, and this is just using Arctic primers uh, with various library prep methods that are out there. On the right side, you can see this region has really suffered from very low coverage. Um, and, and so typically, if you look at a coverage plot across the genome, you'll see 95 to 99% of the genome on you know, moderate, moderate CT samples. Now, it's true that the primer still will, will pull down some of the bases. What we would typically see, though, is that you would have coverage at, the, at very, very low levels, right? A significantly below the, the mean percentage of, of reads that you would have across the genome. And even throwing more sequencing reads, it would increase the numbers of, of the reads, right? But it wouldn't do it proportionally. So you have this unbalanced region. So by adding this additional primer into here, right, compared to the original Arctic design, this, span, this new primer actually is similar in size, right, so it doesn't have any ad, uh, ad advantage versus the other primers, but it was essentially staggered um, so that it would capture the specific region and, and, and really not create any other issues, right, when you start thinking about how primers are multiplexed um, together. What you see here on the left is the original Arctic design, which is in the orange shade. And then with the new balance, with the, with the new rebalanced primers, I'm covering that region. What you see is that you go from essentially, you know, one to 2% of the mean up to significantly above the mean, right, all across this, this area. Um, and so this was important here because we've had people who have come to us to say this is, this is an absolutely critical area. Right, but, but the other thing is that by rebalancing the primers from a concentration point of view, we've also been able to tweak that a little bit across the genome and create higher uniformity um, overall. <clears throat> but really this, this webinar here <clears throat> is talking about you know, B117 and 351 and other variants. And so the question, a lot of this has come, and the, the, I think not just the uncovering of it, right, was, was, was really seen because there are assays that are out there that are that are PCR assays for diagnostics that specifically target the spike protein. And one of the ways that this was uncovered was that there started to be this, this S-gene dropout, right, in PCR tests. And so many PCR tests are, are pangenomic, covering the S-gene, the E-gene, the N-gene. And so with that, with seeing the S-dropouts, right, that pushed a lot of samples into sequencing to understand what was going on. The first real case here, right, was B117, where this S dropout uh, became very, very clear here because there was a um, there was the N501Y um, variant <laughs> here that you would see here, and and what you needed to do, right, was essentially move the sequencing to be able to do this. But when you start thinking that this is PCR based, right, you also start thinking about well, these are PCR primers that are adapted for NGS. Well, will that affect it? So we know, Kaijin knows, and others, right, know that when you start looking at the performance of PCR amplification for next-gen sequencing, the position of the variant is really important when thinking about how effective a primer is. 
And so looking at 117, right, we have, we have no, no known or thought observed a negative effect, right, that could potentially reduce the effectiveness um, when, when trying to identify B117 using uh, targeted whole genome sequencing. Now, just to call out one specific uh, variant here, right, the, the deletion at, at 21991 to 21993, is that what you can actually see here is this, this deletion is just outside of the primer region. And so from when you're covering it here, it's, it's enriched by both Amplicon 72 and 73, um, and, but it is very, very close to that primer region. But with B117, this really shouldn't be an issue here. And as you zoom in, you can see this very, very specifically here, right, to, to be able to say this is right just outside that edge of the primer. <clears throat> now, with V1351, though, what we do see is that some of the variants are actually located <clears throat> in some of the primer sites. So <clears throat> in doing analysis here, it, it's important to think about where in the primer site that the variant is. So at, at the three prime end, when you start looking at it, that's the most impactful when it comes to, you know, sort of off-target amplification or, or primer binding. What we see here is that the variants in, in 1351 are 10 base, about 7 to 9 bases, and 20 bases from that primer start side of the 3 prime end. So we really believe, based on that, based on the fact that you can still use and it's been published Arctic primers to identify 351, right, is that this really um, should not have an effect in terms of, of, of not being able to see um, the variants. Now, all of these variants will, will be typically covered by an alternative primer, right, that actually overlaps it fully here. Um, but then the variants would actually affect um, the specific primer, the amplicon, the amplicon 30, amplicon 75, and amplicon 85. So that's actually where you have to look for this. As variants potentially right now become closer to the three prime end, it may be, may be necessary, right, to adapt these uh, sequencing uh, targeting uh, panels, right, to be, essentially to be able to meet that. And that's something that we are keeping in mind as we continue to evolve our product offering. But here, as you go in here, what you see is, as I'm going to show some, some individual plots using our CLC Genomics Workbench, is you can see, again, the visualization of where these variants fall. Again, up top, you can see that this overlapping amplicon on the top right here um, that you can actually see uh, that, that covers it right in the middle. So you wouldn't really ex expect to have any, any dropout there. It's only in, in really in primer 76 and the alternative 76 here that could potentially be an issue. But again, based on um, previously published reports in terms of, of where you know, prime, where mutations are in primer binding sites, we don't believe that this will have a significant effect. And so again, this is showing in, in the spike protein, right, the G22813T uh, transition. So let me show you some data here. <clears throat> so the first thing that, that we, we want to go to is, is, is a publication that, that is, is now um, in peer review that's uh, been published in BioArchive from Loma Linda University. And so we, we had our customer at Loma Linda who went and, and they trialed a number of different methodologies that were out there, whether it's using an amplicon-based solution um, and, and both a, 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 a pre-release beta test version and, and they finally released Chi-Seq SARS-CoV-2 primer panel, um, other Arctic-based targeted uh, viral genome sequencing methodologies, 
as well as looking at a whole genome, I'm sorry, whole transcriptome sequencing using both a low input RNA seq with our Chi-Seq single cell RNA sequencing or general RNA sequencing methodologies here. So across all of the different protocols, right, what was one of the most important questions, I think one of the questions that I've heard, uh, I think most frequently, is that <clears throat> what is the sequencing depth that, that is really necessary to, to be able to make ver uh, mutation calls? So uh, the initial ranges that were published last year suggested sequencing at a, at a reads of a million reads per sample. Now, a million reads per sample, right, will, will generate, you know, varying coverage across that genome. But we've had coverage questions about covering, you know, can I sequence as low as 100,000 or 250,000 reads per sample? At, at about a 29,000, uh, you know, base genome, on average, right, if you sequence to 100,000 samples, it'll, it'll yield you a rough median coverage of about 3x per sample. Now, that's on the low end, right? And so, you know, you're not going to be looking for rare viral mutations with sequencing that low. You just don't have the depth to do that. You can build consensus sequences, certainly, right? And, 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 and really, that's what you're capable of doing when you go down to those low levels. And right now, I think where everyone is is really toy toy trying to identify what the most uh, uh, pertinent variant or of the virus is in a patient sample. And so, you know, sequencing low to, to, to create higher multiplexing will, will allow you to build consensus reads and you'll, and you'll make it af after that. Will you be able to find novel variants? No, not with that type of sequencing depth. If you, you know, add two and a half times to that, right? So you move from about 3x average coverage to about 10x average coverage, 250,000 reads, right? Now, again, you're going to get to about 10x coverage overall in the genome. This gives you a little bit more leeway in terms of, of being able to potentially find something, but you're not going to be able to find an ultra-low mutation here, right? Again, this is for consensus rebuilding. However, if you do want to go up to now finding, whether it's for research, right, in terms of approaches, you do want to be able to go into sequence to find rare variants. It means that you need you do need to think about taking those read numbers up significantly, right? So at a at a million reads per sample, um, you're going to get approximately 40x average coverage, uh, right? So certainly not something that you're going to find like a 0.1% uh, uh, a clonotype that's in that sample, right? But you can get an idea that the the more reads that you put into it, the more rare things that you find if you're doing research. If you're just building consensus sequences, right? It's, you, you can go down and have flexibility with, with whatever read depth, I think down to 100,000 reads per sample. But in this paper, right, what, we were, what, what, what the Wang lab was able to show is that the, the Chi-Seq SARS-CoV-2 primer panel actually showed the best results when compared to other methodologies. Now, this is different than when looking at whole metatranscriptomic approaches overall, right? But we know that if you want to, to be able to build consensus sequences and you want to be able to maximize your read depth here, Right, a targeted whole genome sequencing approach is the best approach overall. Okay. Now, this is talking about uniformity, and and again here, right, we, we talked about the, or I talked about earlier about rebalancing the primers for for increased uniformity. While this publication doesn't take into effect that rebalancing as this was done before the update, um, what it did show is that the the, the, the launch product that we launched last year in June, the Chi-Seq SARS-CoV-2 primer panel. And that's different than if you look at this publication with the beta kit that we gave um, uh, uh, the, the Loma Linda lab earlier in the year, 
right? It it showed the the, the I think the overall best uniformity in coverage, right? And so looking at this, we know that the high phi chemistry that we built, right, the primers that we've used, and 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 the approach that we took along with the Chi-Seq FX Library Prep Kit, not only will provide you with high g g overall genomic coverage, right, but with uniformity. And looking to maximize the value, right? Uniformity is key. As you, if you have overrepresentation of certain regions, right, that can always skew your result and make it harder to get, you know, some of those those lower coverage uh, reads, you know, essentially to be balanced with the rest of the genome and mean you have to throw more sequencing at it. Now, again, they did, an, they did an estimation here of, you know, what's the library protocol in terms of the read depth on S and B uh, detection. Their assertion here is that about a half million reads was sufficient to properly detect roughly 95% of the consensus SNVs. And as I mentioned in the previous slide of discussing, you know, what, what the best solution that you have is depending on what you're looking for. You know, this is again from our customer in Loma Linda who is, is sort of asserted here that about a half million reads. This is an area where we think there's a lot of flexibility. But again, if you want to make sure that you have the, the highest fidelity of your consensus calling, especially for these variants, and to identify the viral variants, right, you know, 250,000, 500,000 reads is definitely sufficient to be able to do that. If you test that and pull it down, you'll be able to do that, right? But there's always going to be sort of a trade-off here in sequencing coverage versus viral variant detection. <clears throat> But, you know, even going back to this idea of, you know, okay, we're always, almost always coming from uh, CT values, right, of post-diagnostic testing for next-gen sequencing of where we're starting from. And so, as I go back to some of our earliest testers, what well, we had a, a relationship with the Maryland Depart State Department of Health, uh, who, who, where our global headquarters is, is located in Maryland here, we worked with them and they took a number of their positives from a CT of 17 all the way up to 31.5. And overall, what you see is that in this range, right, which is the vast majority, I think, of, of you know, positive diagnostic tests here that we say are confidently positive um, below CTs of 32, is that you see high genomic coverage of 99 plus percent overall across the genome. But one of the other questions that's come is that, you know, in, yes, in diagnostic settings, when you get that 18 to 32, it's clear that you should be able to get, you know, good coverage. But what about over 32? How does that affect the coverage of the genome? Now, these samples are the most challenging to deal with, right? Because depending on where in the infection cycle they are, they may be easily uh, amplifiable or they may not be easily amplifiable. And so, really to test at a pure level uh, what sensitivity the kit is compatible with is that we did a copy number titration using the ATCC standard from 10,000 copies all the way down to 20 copies, right, which is approximately CT of 37.49. Now, this is a controlled sample, and in our uh, facility, we are, are not able to, we don't have a BSL-2 facility, so we cannot uh, test actively, um, you know, active infected uh, samples. Right, but it made the most sense to actually go from a reference sample that we have here that's publicly available. And using this ATCC control sample, you can see that even at 20 copies, we're, we're reliably able to get over 90%. Now, I have seen that this coverage varies, you know, tremendously depending on the sample, depending on whether it's swab, saliva, right, again, where in the infection cycle. Um, so significant differences in CT values can show 
significant uh, deviations in terms of performance. And I think that, that, that you typically will see that, you know, not just with a Cayuseq approach, but any targeted approach of looking at these samples, and that's not surprising to see overall. But as I start to close up and move into the bioinformatics portion here, it's important just to show is that in this, in this titration experiment, we looked at important genes like RDRP, S, and N, where a number of the initial CDC uh, diagnostic assays were. And what you can see here, right, is that up to 1,000 copies, we expect to get really, really good coverage. And you should see co good coverage in all of these genes. As you go lower, right, there is going to be impact in, in these regions. Right, and so that is going to have an effect on this. Again, that's not any different than what you would see uh, with a Kaisi kit, whether you're doing a homebrew method of Arctic primers. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of variability, and we know there's a tremendous amount of variability in the diagnostic CT values that are seen for sequencing. Some right in the low teens, all the way up to some in the high 30s. Um, but you are going to be able to cover the genome with this and be able to, to, to generate that data and potentially submit that to GISAID or SRA after the fact. So with that said, and going back to the first slide, I think that we, or one of the early slides that we talked about, we know that the, the demand has significantly increased, right, by, by you know, at a minimum 1,000x in terms of the need for sequencing. Um, and we know that there's a strain and demand for testing materials that are going on. So with this, right, I've, what I've talked about is, is Kaijin's current solution that we have on the market. But coming in April, uh, just a few months away here, we're, we're going to release a new Kaiseq Direct SARS-CoV-2 uh, product. It's going to be a single box solution that will have, um, you know, RT, it will have enrichment, it will have beads, it will have um, library prep, and will all be in a single box allowing you to buy that. It, it essentially, the part of this kit, and the reason why we're developing this kit now as an, as, as an additional kit to what we already have, is that we're recognizing there's an absolute need to reduce tips, to reduce workflow, to reduce plastics. And this kit will do this by 50% while cutting the workflow time to four hours, even, even manually, right? Um, and so that's a significant interest, I think, to a lot of people who, who we've been speaking to over the last six weeks who have said, I needed to be faster, I needed to not consume as much, and I need to get on the sequencer and be able to run it as quickly as possible as, as these diagnostic tests come in. But with the fact that we know that the Arctic primer designs have really become sort of canonical, right? We use the same primer design algorithm, right, that was used for the Arctic primer designs, but here we adapted it for short reads. Um, and so what this means is that we'll have amplicons that are smaller in size compared to the 400 base pair Arctic primers or the Arctic uh, amplicons. And so what that will yield is, again, compatibility with all different types of samples because of the shorter amplicons, swab and saliva and wastewater, right? And this will lead to higher uniformity overall. So, you know, the reason why we're discussing it and bringing it up today is that if you're interested in learning more about this kit, we're certainly, you know, in the chat box, you can certainly uh, provide us your information and we'll be happy to get back to you. We'll be doing a beta testing program coming up very soon. And if you're looking to now scale your solutions even faster and more over the next few months, right, this may be the solution for you. And so uh, please reach out to us and let us know your interest. Um, and with that, I'm going to transition it over uh, to our, our, our solutions for our digital insights and Sean. Thanks, Brian.
and just switching over to my main screen, it looks like you guys should be able to see everything. Um, so Brian, thanks for all that uh, information about the uh, primer panel. Um, and now we want to jump into sort of how do we, you know, deal with, you know, the data that we're generating. Um, looking at some of my, uh, looking at the B one one seven variant and um, just some data that we uh, that I was looking at recently inside of the genomics workbench. Um, I had processed a bunch of Kaiseq samples, uh, SARS-CoV-2 primer panel samples, um, some publicly available data from SRA. You can see the ERP121228, um, which actually comes from a UK SARS-CoV-2 surveillance. Um, and I really was focusing on mid to late uh, December samples, and then 25 reference strains. And when I you know, had processed the, the sample and generated a whole genome alignment and phylogenetic tree, there was an interesting cluster that sort of popped up down here all by its lonesome. Um, and not only that, but we can see all of those samples that were coming from the United Kingdom. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that. And so looking into those samples, uh, looking specifically one in, in, in particular, we could dive directly into that read mapping and actually verify this mutation, this uh, 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 501 uh, mutation in the B117, along with a whole bunch of other uh, confirming mutations for the B117 variant. <clears throat> and we can see that why why that uh, cluster of samples sort of, uh, or why that cluster of samples uh, were unique in that uh, portion of the phylogenetic tree. So we understand that from the informatics side of things, very quickly I was able to establish and find a unique cluster that was uh, 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 representative of the B117 variant. And the interesting thing is, well, how do we get here, right? So um, we had this data that Brian showed how we generate. Now we have this data, we started making some phylogenetic trees, but how do we get there and how can we make this easy? And of course, at this point in time with the volume of samples that people are seeing, how do we do this quickly, right? And so now that we're able to verify that we can call those variants, we can see that within the phylogenetic tree, we wanna know how do we get to that uh, the most easy way possible. And Within the, the CLC, uh, or the, excuse me, the Kyogen uh, Genomics Workbench, we actually have provided a workflow for the scientists to be able to process their data. What it does is it takes their Kyogen <clears throat> SARS-CoV-2 data, does uh, an, a QC or a trim the reads, um, map the reads to a reference. One thing that's super important, I think, is with all these Amplicon-based um, uh, panels is soft clipping the primer sequences, so that way, if there is a variant that falls within that primer region, uh, that perfect match to the primer doesn't uh, um, effectively wash out the frequency of the mutation. Now, this is done over all samples, so you can see this is an iterative process. So we're going to take all your samples in, run them through this uh, portion of the uh, sample or uh, of the process, uh, doing a local realignment and variant calling, um, outputting uh, <clears throat> all the cons consensus sequence, and of course, generating coverage maps and QC reports that uh, one can utilize to verify that um, their sequencing primer uh, panel went successfully. And we see that very quickly within just a, a comprehensive report that's generated on the output. So what we can see here is just an overview of just remapping statistics within the application or within these samples. And when looking at this, we can see that if there are samples that fall out of sort of the normal or outside of the range of the rest, we do actually flag them within um, the visualization or within the report. 
along that as well is what we take all of the samples and we generate graphical representations of variants, uh, read pileups, um, and give you a way to navigate and manipulate the results so that way you can, of course, use things for publication purposes or um, any other types of um, reporting that you need to do. Additionally, we can call the variants. We were able to see that uh, we have some specific mutations that were uh, in line with the B117 mutation. Um, and once we were able to gener uh, generate the read mapping and, and variants and the consensus sequence, we ended up taking that data out and running a, um, a phylogenetic uh, tree to be able to distinguish uh, what um, the different clades within uh, the samples that we had generated. And so within the application, we're able to have one workflow for the uh, read mapping variant calling. And then additionally, I had a second workflow that I had utilized for whole genome alignment. Um, and that just enabled me to incorporate whatever sequences I wanted to into the whole genome component of it. Now, one issue that we see in this space, I'd say today, is really just a scalability, right? So we could uh, envision having, uh, you know, anywhere between a few samples on a weekly basis to hundreds of samples potentially on a week weekly basis. And then it's important to understand that you may need a solution that scales up with you. And so there's two different ways that we can scale. Um, one is leveraging your existing hardware uh, through our what we refer to as the genomic server. But today, what I was really focusing on is, well, how do I deal with these large volumes of samples when I may not, they, they're, they come in ebbs and flows. And so what I was able to leverage was uh, the genomics cloud engine, um, effectively using AWS as my workhorse, and enabled me to spin up as many instances as I needed to, to process the samples as fast as, uh, as, fast as, as possible. So just to take a, a, a <clears throat> excuse me, a screenshot from my uh, workflow out, uh, my log file, um, this was roughly as a, about 75 samples, I think it was a few more than that. Um, but the process time here was 40 minutes to process all 75 samples through that whole workflow, um, incorporating, uh, uploading and downloading some of the data uh, that I needed to um, as well. So uh, what we can really do or, or able to do in the informatics side um, is really uh, reduce the amount of time um, that your computational uh, your computational burden will end up ensuing. So yeah, I mean, with at least with applications, uh, one thing I like to do is actually show the application, right? So uh, when it comes to software and processing the data, it's always nice to see the actual tool itself. So when we look into the workbench, there's a couple components that were needed in order to be able to to do the analysis. Um, they are actually freely available in. Uh, freely available plugins. So we simply clicked on the plugins. This biomedical genomics analysis plugin and cloud plugin were just two components that I needed in order to do this analysis that um, uh, the 40 minutes to process the samples that uh, we were looking at. So once we installed the plugins, we end up with new functionality within the workbench. One, a cloud connection. The cloud connection allows me to uh, connect to a genomics cloud engine to uh, submit my samples to, and also allows me to access my S3 bucket for storage purposes. The biomedical- Sean, Sean, I need to break in. Um, I think that we may have lost uh, visibility of the presentation. 
Um, could I have the attendees please use your chat box to let me know if you can see Sean's presentation? Okay, it looks like okay, I, it looks like most people can. I had someone say that they couldn't. So, um, all right, good. I'll let you, Sean, go ahead and continue. The person who couldn't see it, if you, you may want to try logging in again, you may have uh, had a glitch on, on your end. All right, thank you. Sorry to interrupt, Sean. Oh no, I, I thank you very much. I, I would have hated to have that. Um, no one being able to see my screen. It's kind of like when you lose a cell phone, so, drop a cell phone phone call. Um, so as I was uh, saying, we we talked about the cloud connection as a way to you know access the uh, our AWS instance of the genomics cloud engine, and then I had the biomedical genomics workbench plugin. And when we install the plugin for the biomedical workbench uh, functionalities, we will uh, in, <clears throat> add some ready-to-use workflows to the workbench. Now, these span a variety of different applications, but today we're focused specifically on SARS-CoV-2 workflows. Here you'll notice that once we install that plugin, we have a identify Chi-Seq SARS-CoV-2, uh, low frequency, but it actually calls a couple different frequency variants, um, and also puts together a shared variant. When we look at workflows, we can always access the workflow as our own. So we can easily right click and say, open a copy of a workflow, which will enable you to edit and modify any of these workflows um, as you see fit. So just keep in mind, these ready to use workflows are very much optimized for the types of data that we're expecting. But we do understand that end users will potentially want to manipulate some of the parameters to as they see fit for their specific research. And they can do so by simply right clicking on the workflow and saying open a copy of which will enable them to modify. But as I said, this is a really simple uh, process. All I had to do was double click on the uh, identified Kaiseq um, ready to use workflow, define that I was running this on the genomics cloud engine. And really this is a pretty small uh, type of analysis, meaning we're not talking about some plant genome or human sized genome. So I was actually able to use a smaller instance where it was only spinning up uh, eight CPU, uh, machines with eight cores and 16 gigs of RAM. And in fact, I didn't download all of the results because I just went in and fetched the, the results that I wanted to downstream. So we simply just told it we were running it on the cloud. And in this case, we are importing the data. And I was importing the data simply from my S3 bucket, right? And so I would make a selection of the files that I want to process. And in this case, I would select all 78 or whatever that I did. You'll notice it'll import that data and then process it through the workflow. It needs reference files. It wants to understand, is there metadata or how do I organize these samples? And each sample in this case is its own. So we can just leave it as the input and we'll visualize all the samples that it will be processing. Now, as we go into the uh, configuring the parameters, we'll see over here, everything's wizard driven. So it's gonna show you what step of the workflow that we're on. And here you can see it's just removing false positives for high frequency. And when we look at the um, locked settings, you can see this is saying that the variant needs a minimum frequency of 50%. We also have a low frequency in this workflow that's calling down to 20% or keeping variants, excuse me, with a frequency um, at 20% uh, or above. Again, we've had customers wanna modify these and that's why it's important to know that you can get into those workflows. And now when we get uh, towards the end, it's just gonna say, well, where do we wanna save that data, right? And this is gonna be my S3 location, S3 location. So it's saving my data in my genomics cloud engine. 
And then I can tell it, you know, how am I going to handle these results? They're going to be saved. And anything that's going to come back local will uh, just save into a specified folder within my uh, navigation area. What this will do is launch, launch that job onto the Genomics Cloud Engine, and it will spin up instances within the uh, environment as it sees fit. So if I had submitted 10 samples, well, it may only spin up one or two nodes and then process those 10 samples. As I increase that volume in the queue, it will spin up more and more instances, of course, can de define on you know however many instances you want to configure it to, and that will therefore reduce the overall time to completion. As I said, the results from this um, are going to be, in this case, I downloaded um, a consensus sequence, a read mapping file, and a variant list for each sample, along with what I would normally look at, generally speaking, would be a summary report, which gives me a global global overview of the information about the samples that were processed, things like the read summary, so summary statistics, the number of reads in, how many of them were paired, um, and then QC for sequencing data. Um, and again, I was showing in my slides, whenever we see samples that you know are slightly different than the normal, we will simply highlight them in the table to say that they're potentially outliers. Um, yellow is just uh, cautionary, red would be definite outliers. And we can see you know, read mapping summary statistics. So this right-hand side panel allows us easily to jump to any one of these sections and gives us a way of, of looking at and understanding you know, if there's anything um, about a sample that sort of falls outside of what we would um, expect as normal. So our summary report, we also put together a genome browser with all of the information. So we take the reference sequence, the CDS, uh, the gene information, and a list of all the shared variants. So in this case, this is 235 variants. This is representative of variants across all the samples. And we can just see, um, you know, the sample names that have the variant that we're calling in that position. So again, just a no nice way of being able to navigate the um, uh, the data above. Again, this is looking at just variants in a table format uh, from a global perspective. Um, if we wanted to look at any individual samples, we could look at individual samples by jumping into just the variant um, for a specific individual sample. So we were able to read map, call variants, um, utilizing the Kaiseq um, uh, ready to use workflow. And you know, in this case, we were looking at and trying to understand uh, more of a, a whole uh, genome approach. Or, uh, and so what we wanted to do is incorporate uh, a whole genome alignment type of functionality. And in this case, we took all the consensus sequences along with uh, about 25 different reference strains uh, from NCBI. Um, we created a whole genome alignment, uh, took that whole genome alignment and did like extract multiple sequence alignment and created an average nucleotide um, comparison and then generated a phylogenetic tree. Again, this could be incorporated into a single workflow, um, but I had generated two. So when we talk about the whole um, <clears throat> whole genome um, alignment type of functionality as i said we had it create an alignment of all the consensus sequences so here we have each consensus sequence that was created and again a whole genome alignment um, uh, uh, visualization 
Um, what we cared mostly about in this case was really looking at the phylogenetic tree. Um, and so opening up the phylogenetic tree, we can <clears throat> visualize how we have um, multiple different clades here. Um, and when visual, when looking at this from a visualization point of view, um, you can see, if, you know, maybe we want to make things look a little bit easier to digest. So we can use this right-hand side panel as a way of manipulating the object, changing things from th such as like radial, um, looking at the labels, maybe hide or enable, uh, let me, So it just gives us ways of turning off labels. Again, what we're trying to do is be able to make this image as pretty as possible. One thing that I had shown inside of the, um, in my slide presentation was the ability or metadata associated with these samples. So I just switched from a tree view to a table view of the phylogenetic um, tree. And you can see here samples from, you know, this is an, uh, an NCBI reference sequence. Here's some uh, different um, individual samples, consensus sequences from um, SRA. And so what I can do is take an import metadata. So if we, as long as we have information about these samples, we can take in, in uh, a table format um, and we can import metadata on top of our, um, uh, on top of our phylogenetic tree. That's going to be, where did I put <clears throat> And so what it's trying to do is just match that naming column here. So that name column uh, with whatever is in this Excel file. And what that does is now takes that information from the Excel file, uh, enables it as metadata, and now we can utilize that metadata to color nodes, label text, um, branch color. But what I'll simply do, uh, utilizing it as a metadata layer, will allow me to go in and say, for instance, uh, look at geographic location. And because the metadata file had geographical location for many of these samples, you can see how we will populate that information on top of the phylogenetic tree. Of course, we can zoom in, zoom out of that object as well. And we can see again, our specific clade over here where the samples coming from the United Kingdom that had uh, the uh, B117 type of mutation. I will just point out from a graphical point of view, if we want to put this into publications, we simply hit graphics and we can export either the whole area of the visible area um, for, uh, again, to incorporate into publications, reports, and things along those lines. So at least from the informatics side of things, um, some of the benefits that we see from utilizing the CLC um, genomics workbench are ready to use workflows that can be run on a laptop, a server, a cloud. So I was specifically showing how we leveraged the cloud engine to process a large volume of samples in a very short period of time. Um, because it's a ready to use workflow, it's minimal hands-on for the end users. But, <coughs> excuse me. But as I mentioned, it is fully customizable. So you can use it as sort of a building block or a starting point <clears throat> for making your own workflow. 
Uh, it runs right now in version 20 or 21 of the Genomics Workbench. Um, and obviously what you could see is that the, the way that we processed that workflow was just simply opening up the application. Um, I installed a couple work, uh, I installed the one workflow for, uh, excuse me, the Biomedical Genomics uh, Workbench plugin. That's what actually brought that um, ready to use workflow. And we were able to just simply click run, configure the results or configure the settings and you know actually visualize the results. As I mentioned, the output is gonna be a consensus sequence. That's what I ended up using in my uh, whole genome alignment. It did open up a, like a genome track view or, uh, or um, a genome browser view for both an every individual sample, but also a global, uh, a global visualization as well. And then of course, QC reports on the individual samples. I mean, I could go in and look at just a report for one sample, or I think that global report and sticking everything into one object uh, will prove much more beneficial, especially when you're looking at, um, you know, if there's any sort of pass-fail issues with any sample. And then, you know, we can generate phylogenetic trees. Um, and I, I simply utilized our whole genome alignment functionality. Uh, I think if we had a lot of time, um, we could also jump into SNP tree construction uh, or Kamer tree constructions uh, to see, you know, which one may be beneficial or the most um, uh, time-saving for generating phylogenetics. Uh, for this type of data. So at least from the informatics side of things, um, I, I think that wraps up everything I have. Um, Brian, is there anything that you want to uh, summarize with? No, so uh, no, just want to say thank you everyone for attending. And uh, we're certainly, I'm not sure if uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to Joby uh, right now. Great. Well, thank you both for a really great presentation today. Um, I would like to invite our attendees at this time, if you have a question and you have not entered it in an, into your chat box, please go ahead and do that now. Um, we do have a number of questions that have popped up during the presentation, so we'll start with those. Um, I think probably um, this first one might go to Brian. Um, Let's see. Um, is let's see. Uh, um, are the are there primers just for the spike enrichment and sequencing? Yeah. <clears throat> so that's a great question. I think everyone is is right now is is trying to figure out what the best solution <clears throat> to sequencing is. So the spike protein, right? I believe is 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 just a few thousand bases long, and so there is the 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 entire genome of SARS-CoV-2 is covered in in two pools, right? It, the yes, the spike protein of the S gene is not pulled out, and we don't offer a specific uh, spike protein enrichment for that. Um, you know, certainly something to to look at in the future. Um, but, you know, you also have to think about in terms of, of, of the utility of it. So looking and being able to identify the viral variants themselves, while a lot of the focus is on just the spike protein, to be able to specifically identify the full viral variant based on the lineage, you need to do whole genome sequencing. And actually, I believe to submit to GISAID, you do need a full viral genome sequence whether from whole transcriptome sequencing or targeted whole genome sequencing to submit that as well. So uh, right right now we do not have that solution for just enriching the spike protein. Thank you. Another question here. Um, how likely is it that by using non-mutant primers in your enrichment that you will miss actual mutants in your sequencing? 
Yeah. So <clears throat> as I as I described earlier, that the the belief here is is that with the overlapping nature of the uh, of the Arctic primers, is is that there is a low likelihood overall of missing specific uh, variants. What you would likely see here is that if a variant sat right on top of a three prime primer site, you would have reduced efficacy of the of the of the amplicon it's actually trying to generate. Um, so there is a potential risk for that. And as I said, we are looking at alternative designs. And, and as the, the primer that we've introduced here has an alternative <clears throat> design, right, for uh, um, to cover that, that endoribonuclease region. So it's something we're keeping a close eye on. Um, and there's no easy way to, re to fully redesign, you know, primers and just spike that in and to deliver that. Um, but it's something that we, we, we will certainly monitor as, as new variants emerge around the world. Great, thank you. Um, Brian, another question for you. Um, this person's working with wastewater materials. So they asked, do we need more reads per sample when we use wastewater material in order to detect the low frequency virus variants um, that may be present in one sample? Yeah, <clears throat> so, so that's a good question. And it really depends on what type of approach you're taking, right? So if you're taking a whole transcriptome approach, um, to be able to find low copy number uh, samples or, or virus there is going to require you to dedicate a significant amount of sequencing space. Um, you know, if you don't deplete for ribosomal RNA, um, whether human or bacterial, right, you could certainly are going to have that prevalent in wastewater. Um, so it's something to consider. Now, if you're using a targeted approach, um, the targeted approach, the primers are very specific. Um, we have seen indications where there is some background that comes up, mostly human, um, from samples that have extremely high CTs, right? Um, I think that we've seen above 35 where we see this, this, this background information um, in diagnostic testing. In wastewater testing, you're gonna have background. It's just something to, that, that I think that you, you have to live with. Um, it's difficult to be able to say that there's one strategy over another that is better. If you can dedicate more sequencing to it as a, for a surveillance approach to identify the, pre the presence of the virus, right, that's always recommended because you'll get better resolution. But if you're just trying to detect whether SARS-CoV-2 is present in the wastewater versus being able to detect novel variants, Right, I think that's a different question. And when you want to detect um, variants and be able to find that, you are going to have to dedicate higher amounts of sequencing because the, the variant will be will be there in percentage as relative to the population. So if you are in a state, say in the United States, where there is a low percentage of V117, you would expect to find that as a, a, a low chronotype number. Right, so you would have to adjust your sequencing to that. And, and over time, if D117 predominates, like is being thought it, it will potentially do, you will see the percentage of B117 essentially evolve and become more dominant in the wastewater as it becomes more prevalent uh, in your sample. Thank you. Um, maybe somewhat related to that, uh, this question asks, what is the minimum coverage you suggest to call a variant? <clears throat> Yeah, this is um, I, this is a very challenging question to answer. So my background has typically been in human-related sequencing, right, um, across both inherited and uh, on 
oncology applications. We know that the oncology applications will require ultra deep sequencing for ultra sensitivity of things like 0.1%. This is a bit different because we're not trying to, again, to, well, you may be trying to find novel clonotypes. Um, if you are trying to find novel clonotypes, I think that you, because you're going to have to differentiate you know, the, the high uh, frequency uh, consensus reads versus novel clonotypes. There, the belief here is that a million reads per sample, right, is probably on the minimum end if you want to find sort of a range. If you're just building consensus reads to be able to say what the dominant strain is in terms of a consensus sequence, um, you know, Dr. Wang's uh, publication, which we showed there uh, from the, the Wang lab in Loma Linda, that says 500,000. Um, we think that's a safe number. However, you know, if you do go lower, we know there's been published reports that show that you can build consensus reads, you know, with three and four and five X average coverage, which will span, you know, 100,000 to 200,000 reads per sample. So there is a range depending on what your expectation of, of, of you know, novel and rare uh, chronotypes is. Thank you. I think this question is probably for Sean. Um, has anyone tested upload to the Illumina base space COVID ID app? Um, not that I am aware of. You're saying upload to, correct? Instead of download from. Um, I mean, we do have tools to download from base space directly. Um, and I mean, if, if need be, I'm happy to have um, specific conversations. I mean, we've made tools for you know, different types of upload into things like SRA or, or whatnot, um, even GISAID on a, a very um, sort of a user basis, uh, just because from a GISAID point of view, they don't, they, they kind of want to control, um, you know, the, the upload process to a certain degree. Um, so if there is uh, tools or places that we need to sort of integrate within, um, you know, just having that information is, is usually quite useful and, and you know, we can usually integrate with other tools very quickly. Okay, thank you. Um, question here, does the kit have the UMI technology? So when you're talking about coverage, is it UMI coverage? Yeah, so that's a great question. <clears throat> so there's no UMIs here. Um, and the, the reasoning behind that is, again, the type of sequencing that we're talking about. We're building typically, the vast majority of sequencing that's going on right now is building consensus sequences for what's the dominant strain here from a sample. So um, with adding UMIs means that every read needs to have a minimum of three to five UMIs to actually, right, to have enough confidence to be able to condense that into uh, typically on average, right, uh, to be able to say this is a true read. So the kit does not have UMIs, but the reality is, or the question is, are UMIs necessary? If you, if your intention is to potentially to go to ultra high depth sequencing to find novel clonotypes, then that could be useful. If you're only using it right now to amplify and to sequence and to build consensus reads and to identify the viral variant by the mutation patterns that have been published, right, you, you essentially, it's in our estimation that you don't need a highly sensitive approach like UMIs to get good data um, because it won't it won't you're not trying to, de to determine like tumor normal is something you use UMIs for right um, again unless you're trying to find novel chronotypes um, that that then you would need that but we don't have that solution um, available with this with this kit. Okay thank you. 
Okay, thank you. Um, I see that we're about 10 minutes over time here, so I, I think we will need to end the presentation now. I do uh, want to let people know that if we weren't able to answer your question, we'll get back to you by email with an answer. Also, if you are interested in uh, getting more information about our new direct SARS-CoV-2 kit, which should be available um, within the next month or two, please uh, write uh, your name and email address in, in the chat box and uh, let me know that you're interested in the direct kit. Um, great, thanks so much everyone for joining us today. Thank you to our two presenters. A very timely uh, webinar and uh, glad everyone was able to join. Thank you again. This concludes today's webinar and have a great rest of your day.